Good day. You're tuned into the 22nd edition of Free City Radio. Thanks for being with us. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph in Montreal. Um, on the show today, we have a few interviews and some music. Uh, we come at you every Tuesday. Uh, thanks for being with us. It is Tuesday, the 29th of December, 2020. To start the show today, I wanted to share an interview that I did with a graphic designer, uh, community organizer, Josh McPhee, uh, one of the founders of Just Seeds Artist Cooperative, a collection of awesome artists connected to social movements from uh, throughout uh, North America. Um, Josh recently co-edited a book called Celebrate People's History, the poster book of resistance and revolution. It's actually the second edition. It was co-published between Just Seeds and the Feminist Press at uh, CUNY in New York City. Um, the Celebrate People's History poster series um, is ongoing, and basically uh, it is a project to try to celebrate the power of social movements and um, resistance to injustice and oppression at different points throughout history, uh, particularly looking at undercovered uh, movements and uh, people who stood up for justice. Um, within this interview, we get into a lot of details about the uh, People's History uh, Poster Project. Um, it's really uh, a great initiative, and uh, this book is really powerful, uh, posters upon posters. Um, so I called Josh in Brooklyn. This is our conversation. Um, so, hey, Josh. Hello. Thanks for having me on, man. <laughs> Thanks so much. Um, so... I guess first to start, um, can we just rewind and uh, quickly two points. Can you introduce yourself quickly and, and also just say um, where this uh, Celebrate People's History initiative, um, where was it coming from in its origin? Not the book, but the whole, whole project. Sure. Yep. Uh, not that much to add to what you said. My name is Josh McPhee. I live here in Brooklyn, New York. I um, work with the Justice Artist Cooperative and also Interference Archive. Um, I, one of the additional thing that I've spent an immense amount of time on, well, a couple things I've spent an immense amount of time on in the last couple of years. One, I work with a community organization here in New York and in a neighboring state, Connecticut, called the Catal Center for Equity, Health, and Justice. Uh, and I do uh, a lot of their cultural uh, and design and art related work, um, which is almost uh, entirely around decarceration, um, reforming, uh, creating like pretrial justice, reforming or getting rid of um, parole, and uh, increasingly moving towards trying to dismantle and actually get institutions closed. So um, I worked with them very closely for the past four years on a campaign to close Rikers Island here in New York City, and we're working on some new campaigns to close some institutions in Connecticut. So that's really exciting, um, and I, I love that work. And then also, uh, for the past uh, five years, I've been doing a big uh, political music project, too, which I think speaks to your, uh, to your heart, which is uh, I, I put out this uh, publication called the Encyclopedia of Political Record Labels, just sort of exactly that. It's a compendium of almost a thousand record labels that put out political vinyl um, between 1960 and the mid-1990s. 
and using the record label as a way to look at how uh, music and the vinyl record have been used as a form of agitprop by social movements, um, primarily in the second half of the 20th century. So that project is now, I'm, I'm trying to figure out ways to maybe embody that through uh, some sort of radio or podcast um, activity. And then also I'm working on a com uh, connected book project that's all the covers of these records that I've collected for this encyclopedia. There's some amazing political record cover art out there. So all that stuff's also in the works and uh, part of part of my daily daily grind. Well, it seems a huge part of what you do is 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 archiving, but also archiving the moment. I I, I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but um, in a sense, I I see a lot of these posters as historical, but also they come from organizing, you know, I mean, you talked about your work on uh, addressing the prison industrial complex in, in the United States. Um, and um, that's an ongoing um, effort that's over generations of struggle. Um, these posters really speak, I think, to um, the effort to look at uh, our moment and how social movements are located in history. Um, and I, I think if we turn at least, you know, to, I think I'm, I, I'll just say this, I'm as guilty as anybody else of, um, you know, this last year turning much more into the mainstream, tuning in much more into mainstream television as politics feels like this immense crisis. I mean, I, I try to t keep it down, but you know, um, which, and I'm mentioning the mainstream media because there's so little context given, you know, to political ideas, let's say yeah. Medicare for all, you know, as one that's being talked about, um, you know, uh, the rights of prisoners, um, you know, the term prison industrial complex doesn't come up, but these posters seem to locate, uh, celebrate people's histories posters, locate a lot of these ideas in social movements and in and, and organizing history. Um, yeah, could you share some thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, actually, I can maybe tie this right into the, the history of the project, which is, um, I'm gonna hold up this image of Malcolm X here, and this is the first people's history poster that was made in 1998, um, and it has this sort of paraphrased quote from Malcolm X on it. Um, Armed with the knowledge uh, of our past, we can charter a course for our future. Only by knowing where we've been can we know where we are and look to where we want to go. And those have sort of become the watchword of this project, but in, in many ways, it's sort of the watchword of my practice um, as a sort of artist and designer and organizer, which is... Um, to try to really engage with this complex relationship between the present and the past. Because as, um, for lack of a better term, citizens of capitalism, uh, you know, capitalism functions under this intense system of hegemony, the sort of presentation that the way things are now are the way things always have been and they always will be, the sort of reification of the present. Um, and it's only, really by looking at the past and seeing that things have been different before, can we sort of crack that open and understand that, well, if things have been different before, that means they can be different again. Um, and there's a, capitalism is an amazing mechanism for recuperating any moment 
very quickly, almost simultaneously. But the record of the past allows us to, to look back in those moments, to look outside of that reification process and say, wait a second, you know, if things, people actually got this done 20 years ago, that means we can get it done again. Mm. Um, and we can do it different. It, it, you know, it really like cracks open this sort of infinite possibility of futures. And so this project is really about that. It's about um, not only sort of this oblique attack on capitalism and sort of the reification of the present, but also it's about popularizing the idea that we can all be participants in writing our own histories. The history isn't something that should be given to us from above, but history is something that's always written from below. And it's written by movements, but movements are notoriously bad at self-documentation. So what this project for me does is I invite any artist, uh, designer, writer to participate by finding movements that in history that they think are important, but under-recognized, and then create a poster that shines a light on them and brings them back into the present so there can be that conversation and that dialogue, which not only like brings those movements to people's eyeballs now, but engages at this point hundreds of people in the process of doing that and making the idea of history something that is popular, is not outside of our grasp. It's something that we all need to participate in and should participate in. You know, um, thanks so much, Josh, for sharing that. Uh, one one concept uh, that came to my mind is how history can heal mental health, too. You know, and I, I think that, you know, one thing uh, people in grassroots movements struggle with a lot when, when it seems that uh, mainstream discourses really um, undercut the power of social movements or the historical importance of social movements is a struggle around feeling located, right? And, and I think like projects like this change that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, to know that you're not alone. Yeah, respect to that. Um, so in, in the book, there's this, um, I, <laughs> the book on, uh, sorry, the poster on Haymarket and then the Haymarket uh, rebellion action um, Haymarket, well, that led to rebellion in action um, in 1886. And then you start with the May Day poster. There's a connection there. Um, May Day po poster by um, Eric uh, Drucker. Um, I think I just wanted to bring up the, those uh, posters because there's been a lot of talk about essential workers and frontline workers in the last, uh, well, basically in the context of the pandemic, which has been really encouraging uh, to think that there's a real discussion about the efforts of working people. Uh, you know, of course, uh, frontline workers in public institutions or in not in the United States, but, you know, in, in healthcare, unfortunately, is not public in the United States. Um, um, but also within food processing, within distribution, truck driving, uh, janitorial work, uh, transit. So, yeah, can you talk a bit about these two posters and, and any connections you see to contemporary discussions ar around that? I mean, I, I, um, it's interesting because uh, the, the, the book is organized chronologically. And so Haymarket is, is sort of 
the Haymarket poster is, is squeezed at the end of the 19th century, but we start with the Mayday poster. And, and part of the, the idea with that is, is to say that um, the labor movement, uh, particularly the sort of radical labor, labor movement connected to anarchism and, and also socialism and communism in the 19th century, um, you know, created through the, the resistance after the Haymarket and the, the, the murdering of the Haymarket martyrs, created May Day as an international holiday for workers. But May Day predates capitalism. Um, that people had a relationship to the land that they were on uh, that, you know, industrialism internationally has done an amazing job at attempting to eradicate. And so part of this for me was about trying to connect labor back to these more, um, these relationships that we have with the land in our communities that aren't channeled through capitalism and through wage work. Um, and that there's an immense amount of resistance and arguably the majority of resistance um, in the United States and uh, Canada right now is channeled in some way, shape or form through labor. Um, and that's meaningful and important, but that it also needs to be connected to these struggles that have been going on prior to our domination by capitalism. Um, and that it's, it's actually the intersection of those things where there's an immense amount of power. Um, and then, I mean, you can, the, interestingly, just by happenstance, or maybe not, the, the Haymarket poster in the book sits next to the Indian Industrial Training School at Haskell, which is one of the industrial training schools that was set up um, in the United States as part of settler existence, which was to, you know, basically extract indigenous children from their communities and, um, and strip them of their identities to make them better citizens of the United States. But it's an interesting um, complex relationship because indigenous people ultimately took that school over and now it's a place where indigenous peoples go to get training to be able to do things to improve their own communities. And so um, there's a really ambiguous relationship in this poster, um, but, it, but it, it's, it's, it's next, it sits next to Haymarket. And, and so I think that these relationships thread throughout these posters, these struggles that yeah. go together, these struggles that are, go against each other. There's no attempt in this project to create some singular narrative. Um, it's, it's polyvocal, it's, it's sort of poly-ideological. Um, the, 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 the claim is not that these things all go with each other, that there's representations of people in this book that if they met each other, they would hate each other. Um, that's not the point. I mean, in, in a way it is the point that it's that disagreement that's productive ultimately. Uh, that we need to put these things in tension with each other so that we can start to break through and see other ways of doing and being and thinking. Wow. Well, thank, thanks for sharing that. Uh, I wanted to follow up on that, but just, just quickly before we, we jump into that a bit more, um, any, any comments you have about um, the uh, references within the book around labor history and how that's important to the current moment? around uh, the discussion on, on essential workers. Thank you so much. Well, I mean, I do think that there's an, um, there's an immense amount of examples um, 
in the book of people transforming their lives through the organizing that happened inside and, and outside their workplaces. And these are all points of reference that we can learn from today. Um, whether that's the Flint sit-down strike or whether that's Haymarket um, or whether that's something like uh, Vietnam veterans against the war. Like we actually don't, as a larger society, think about veterans as laborers. But at, at this point in both the United States and Canada and a, and a huge portion of the world, um, people go into the military because it's a job. Um, and so when vets return and they organize, they're doing labor organizing. They're organizing in the situation and place of their labor. Um, and so like both the, there's posters around Vietnam vets and Iraq and Afghanistan vets in the book, um, which those are, they're all labor struggles to me. And then one of the posters in the book, which is um, really interesting because it intersects all these things is, Scott Olson, who was a member of the Iraq Veterans Against the War, um, was also a big part of the Occupy movement in Oakland and is, uh, was struck in the head by a tear gas canister shot by the police. And so this ties together veterans movements, labor movements, and the Occupy movement in, in sort of this broad um, sort of ongoing and evolving insurrection against the inequality generated through capitalism. Thanks so much for sharing this, Josh. Um, and, and it's that intersection I think we, we can and need to learn from. Yeah, and I mean, really, this is what this book points to is the intersection of movements, but also, um, you know, the, the fact of the complexity of political ideas and organizing. Um, and uh, I mean, there's a lot to say here, and I would just really encourage people to, um, to check out the book. Um, I guess, you know, one, one particular, uh, you know, one particular focus that you see throughout the book is um, there's labor, of course, but there's also the, um, the focus on indigenous history and Turtle Island, um, you know, which I think is really, really, really powerful. Um, and, you know, um, in general, I think this book, I mean, obviously it speaks to uh, the breadth of the network of different activists that are involved, but also the willingness and the in, intense desire to speak to issues historically that are underrepresented. So I guess finally, um, can you can you talk a bit about, you know, I'm, I'm looking here at the poster around prison, prisoner just prison justice day, you know, which of course uh, I think is on August 10th uh, every year. Um, to speak, you know, to go back to the beginning around the issues of the prison industrial complex that that you've been involved in, um, you know, and there's so many, so many efforts in the United States right now around uh, the voting rights of prisoners uh, and, and all the huge mobilization, particularly in Florida, that happened around that uh, and, and beyond, of course. Um, so uh, can, can, can you speak about uh, sort of this moment and, and what makes you excited about sharing this, this book, um, the Celebrate People's History posters at, at this time? Well, I, I think for, you know, a lot of what we talked about that we're in a moment where um, we've seen an immense upsurgence of struggle the world over in the last decade. 
And I think that we're moving into a period in which not only does that need to continue, but it needs to, you know, go even further as we face, you know, not just like sort of uh, uneven developing fascisms across the world, but the sort of possibility of existence for life on this planet uh, based on um, its treatment by capitalism. And so to me, those struggles are, can only become stronger when they're informed by the lessons that people have learned uh, in the past. Um, that struggle is, a, is, a, is not a singular thing. It is, it's every struggle is the composition of all of the struggles that have come before it. And the more we know about those struggles, not to get caught up in, uh, in trying to somehow recreate the past. That's not, there's no point in that. Um, but in understanding how people have discovered levers of power, how they pulled on those, how people have organized um, tactics and strategies that have been effective in the past, in ways that they may or may not be effective moving forward. All of that is embedded in our history and and we just need to to dig for it. It's like panning for gold. Um, It's it's hard to find those nuggets, but they're there. Um, And the more work we do to make these histories more popular and more accessible, the easier that becomes. That's great, Josh. Thank you so much, uh, Josh, for taking the time to speak with us. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. That was Josh McPhee, uh, who is one of the founders of the Just Seeds Artist Cooperative and has recently published a book called Celebrate People's History, the poster book of resistance and revolution uh, that is co-published by Just Seeds and the Feminist Press at the City University of New York. Thanks to Josh for joining Free City Radio. Um, This is the 22nd edition of the show. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Thanks so much for being with us. I wanted to go to a piece of music now by Max Cooper. Uh, It's a beautiful piece called Repetition.
That was Repetition by Max Cooper, and you're tuned into Free City Radio. Uh, this is the 22nd edition of the podcast. I'm uh, Stefan Christoph here in Montreal. Next, I wanted to go to a conversation I had with David Barsamian, uh, who is the host of a great community radio uh, project that is ongoing called Alternative Radio. I'm sure some of you have heard it. Uh, David recently um, published a collection of writings uh, based on interviews and exchanges. It is called Retargeting Iran, and it looks at the ways that U.S. sanctions have impacted uh, the Iranian people. Uh, there is many contributors to this book. We get into the details. Um, I was really excited to speak with David uh, because of his work, not just on this book, but generally in supporting alternative media and the importance of critical information. His broadcasts on alternative radio uh, really do uh, extend and explore a lot of ideas that we don't hear in the mainstream media. So here's a conversation with David. Thank you for having me, Stefan. And people can hear alternative radio on CKUT Thursday evenings at 7, right there in Montreal. Retargeting uh, Iran is kind of a sequel to the earlier book you alluded to, whose title was Targeting Iran. Uh, the U.S. has never really relented in its hostility and animosity uh, for the Islamic Republic of Iran. It has never forgiven uh, the Islamic Republic for overthrowing its prized uh, sycophant oligarch in the Middle East, the Shah of Iran in 1979. Uh, there has been just a string of misadventures and a lot of saber rattling, a lot of threats of annihilation. And uh, the current uh, president of the United States has talked about the end of Iran, you know. And so th there's a, a very complex history between uh, the two countries. Now, the, this new book, Retargeting Iran, suggests that, you know, the gun sites have never been removed. In fact, they've been ratcheted up. The sanctions that have been imposed by the United States on uh, Iran are the most punitive and most severe in history. This, by the way, is seen with uh, joy and uh, elation by people like uh, Pompeo, the Secretary of State, uh, and others of that uh, ilk. They think it's wonderful that during a pandemic, uh, the Iranians cannot get proper medicine. They cannot get medical equipment because they don't have access to foreign exchange. Or if they have access to foreign exchange, it's being blocked by the U.S. Uh, sanctions regime. So it's extremely cruel. There's no other, no matter what you may think of the Iranian uh, government, I'm not a particularly a big fan of a regime that is theocratic, that is misogynistic, that is patriarchal, that is homophobic. Uh, these are not values that uh, I cherish, but that is the reality of the situation, that we are in a pandemic. And to deny on humanitarian grounds alone uh, access to medicine and medical equipment is simply sadistic. It is cruel and unusual uh, behavior. The participants in the uh, new edition, the new book, published by City Lights, 
uh, include Noam Chomsky, who was in the first book. Uh, but we've added some new people, which I'm really pleased about. Uh, Nader Hashimi uh, is a Canadian Iranian, by the way, grew up in uh, Toronto, currently teaches at the University of Denver. Uh, he's a participant in this book, as is Trita Parsi, who has written uh, the book on the Iran deal. Uh, and uh, he is the, the co-founder of a of an institute in Washington D.C. Uh, today called the Quincy Institute. Azadeh Moaveni is an Iranian woman. I met her when I was in Iran a few years ago. She's now based in London. Uh, she contributes, I think, a really a special aspect of the book because it does focus on gender relations and the role of women in Iranian society. Uh, it is a complex role. Uh, sometimes I make the joke that, you know, if a Saudi woman uh, went to sleep tonight in Riyadh or Jeddah and woke up tomorrow morning in Isfahan or Tehran, she thinks uh, she's landed in heaven because there are so many more uh, rights afforded to Iranian women compared to a Saudi woman. Having said that, uh, it's important to point out that Iranian women uh, are not uh, really in any powerful government positions. They are, that is still controlled by male. There's a male elite that dominates the assembly, uh, the guardian council, uh, and the political uh, leadership. Uh, Ervant Abrahamyan uh, is also a participant in the book. He is an uh, Iranian of Armenian uh, origin. Uh, he is a professor at the City University of New York. Baruch College. Uh, he's written perhaps the best book on the uh, 1953 coup which destroyed democracy in Iran. It's called Operation uh, Ajax. That's the CIA coup name. The, the, uh, Abrahamian's book was called uh, The Coup. And so he adds a lot of that historical background. And Chomsky really, uh, you know, uh, no holes barred on U.S. relations and how uh, hypocritical uh, the U.S. stance has been toward uh, Iran, uh, not allowing for, let's say, diplomatic relations, which seems to be like an elementary thing. Uh, you know, you need to sit and be able to talk to your adversaries, uh, not simply pretend that they're not there. So while the U.S. and the current regime in Washington has diplomatic relations with some of the most extreme autocratic regimes on earth, including General Sisi in uh, Egypt, uh, Erdogan in Ankara in Turkey, uh, Modi in India and others, Saudi Arabia, of course, the monarchies, the Gulf monarchies, extreme oligarchic uh, autocratic regimes, it does not have any diplomatic relations with uh, Iran. It, went into a deal with Iran in uh, 2015 that Obama negotiated. Uh, it was working. It was very successful. Uh, the Iranians would, were adhering to it, so much so that the director of the UN agency, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, based in Vienna, which conducts the uh, inspections of the Iranian sites, said that uh, Iran was in total, I'm quoting here, 
total compliance with the conditions of the deal. Nevertheless, the autocrat in the Oval Office uh, canceled the deal and pulled out of it in May of 2018 under tremendous pressure from Tel Aviv, from his main ally, Bibi Netanyahu, uh, who has uh, participated in this kind of a hysterical orchestration that has sought to demonize Iran, uh, not just as a threat to Israel, but to the whole world. Uh, it's a rather interesting allegation, given the fact that uh, Iran is not even in the top 20 of uh, countries that spend their money on weapons of mass destruction. Uh, Israel has nuclear weapons, it has ballistic missiles, so does India, so does Pakistan. All three of those countries are not signatories to the uh, deal, to the uh, non-proliferation treaty. And so they're ignored by the US because they're more or less US allies in the case of India and Israel, very close US uh, allies. So the hypocrisy here is pretty stark and it's, and it's hard to miss. It uh, reminds me of what the great Michael Parenti, a US scholar and radical analyst once said, said the United States doesn't make the world safe for democracy, it makes it safe for hypocrisy. Thank you so much, David. Uh, it's been many years that you've been highlighting some of this history through your work on alternative radio. I realize that um, uh, maintaining the project has been uh, a huge undertaking. Um, I've heard uh, broadcasts looking, you know, at U.S.-Iranian relations um, for for years. Uh, particularly, there's been a focus on the events of 1953. There was an acknowledgement by the U.S. administration under Obama about this history. I found that very interesting. The question I was I had for you was really just about the role that alternative media plays in changing discourse. Because often there are shifts politically and in terms of like the ways that power acknowledges, um, you know, historical injustices, um, the ways that uh, state power will uh, change narratives. But often it's not really understood, I think, at least in the mainstream discourse, the fundamental role that both social movements plays uh, play in, in, in shifting people's understanding uh, about history and, and, and pushing the acknowledgement of, of, you know, 1953 coup in Iran in this example, um, and, and also the role that independent media plays, you know, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't be acknowledged, say, for example, on CNN, but it, over time, as people push, as independent media pushes, you do see sort of shifts taking place. If, if, if you see what I mean, if you could share your thoughts on this. Well, let me give you an example that will connect with the large uh, Armenian-Canadian community in Montreal, for example. Uh, the recent war in Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, Artsakh in Armenia, uh, was virtually, at least in the United States, devoid of any historical context or background. Uh, it simply erupted. These are age-old enmities between their tribal conflicts. There are angry people harboring deep desires of revenge that stretch back into millennia. This is a conflict that 
without any historical context, you simply cannot understand. Stalin, as the commissar of nationalities, of minorities in the newly formed Soviet Union, this is now 1923, gave the region known as Nagorno-Karabakh with its overwhelmingly Armenian population, it gave that region to neighboring Azerbaijan. Why did it do that? Because Stalin wanted to create and Lenin wanted to create an alliance with the newly emerging Republic of Turkey under Kemal Ataturk. So it was to placate the uh, geopolitical desires of Moscow and Ankara and to ignore the right of self-determination and sovereignty to the majority Armenian community. That's just one example. Uh, there are so many. I thought to connect with your audience there in, in Montreal, they, they might like to have heard that. Uh, I talked about that here uh, in the US, but it was virtually avoided. The topic and its background uh, was not at all covered in any comprehensive or in any contextual fashion. Now, the role of independent alternative media, progressive media, is, I think, crucial because the corporate controlled media in Canada as well as in the United States has certain embedded assumptions that are never challenged. So, for in the United States, for example, it has the right to impose unilaterally on sanctions on other countries it has conflicts with. Uh, it, has the, it reserves for itself the right to militarily invade countries as it has throughout its, its history. Uh, in recent memory, uh, Grenada, uh, Iraq multiple times, Afghanistan, uh, Syria, uh, other countries, Somalia, now in Africa as well, there's U.S. military intervention. Uh, this is never challenged. Uh, international law is never discussed. The UN Charter, which regards armed aggression, and I'm quoting here, as the supreme international war crime, the UN Charter to which the U.S. and Canada are both signatories to, uh, is completely uh, ignored. You have unilateral imperial Inter interventions. So we need to understand what's going on within the context of, uh, in this case, U.S. Uh, foreign policy, the global hegemon seeking to impose its rule uh, on the world. And basically, as Chomsky says, it's what we say goes. You know, it's very much like uh, the opening scene of The Godfather. If you remember, a supplicant uh, comes to Marlon Brando and uh, kisses the Don's hand and uh, requests a favor. And the Don, played by Marlon Brando, Vito Corleone, uh, uh, accepts you know, the offer. He does the favor for the uh, supplicant, but tells him you know, that now you, know, you have to obey me. You have to pay homage to me. You have to honor and respect me and do what I tell you to do. And so Iran was part of that orbit of being inside uh, the U.S. Uh, hegemonic sphere. Mm. The Islamic Revolution broke that. And, and for that, independent nationalism uh, is never to be given, 
is never to be allowed, it's never to be forgiven. Why? Because it might give other countries the idea that they too can break out of the US controlled uh, orbit. And so it's the threat of that that elicits such a violent response uh, from Washington. The destruction in Iraq, one of the greatest war crimes, not just of this century, but in history, uh, basically goes you know, unremarked on. The criminals that organized and prosecuted that war, who continue to occupy you know, Iraq, all of them, Bush, Obama, Cheney, Gates, Rumsfeld, all of them should have been tried uh, in a Nuremberg-like tribunal and held to account for their war crimes. Nothing happened. So we in the independent media need to point this out, that there has to be accountability. There has to be consistency in international law if international law is to mean anything. Otherwise, we have a completely anarchic tribal situation where the rule of the most powerful dominates. And that to me is unacceptable. People have the right to sovereignty, be they Iranians, be they Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh, be they Kurds in Syria, Iran, uh, Turkey particularly, and, um, and Iraq, uh, and other uh, groups around the country that are being prevented from realizing uh, their uh, desires for sovereignty. Thank you so much, David. Uh, last question. Um, in terms of looking at, at history um, and also the contemporary context on, on Iran, but also more generally, you talked about um, a legal consistency or consistency in the application of international law. Um, now, of course, uh, there are so many ways that um, international law could be critiqued. However, um, I think that this point you're underlining in terms of the role of the G7, that includes Canada, is something that a lot of people don't understand because of mainstream media discourse on the issue. Um, can, you, can you underline a little bit more from both the human rights perspective, but also in terms of a lot of the history you're talking about where, say, for example, you know, you're bringing up the history of Nagorno-Karabakh um, and, and the ways that that history today has created a context that has led eventually to conflict, you know, without the, you know, without a fair acknowledgement of, you know, international law in various contexts and this sort of gangster politics that happens in various historical situations or in the present day, there are consequences basically. Um, so yeah, if, if you could talk a bit uh, to this point, thank you so much. Well, propaganda is uh, an essential part of the projection of imperial power. So those who control the presses, the microphones, the TV cameras, the cell phones, uh, are in a singular position of, of power and are able to shape and uh, control the narrative, the discourse. And I just wanted to mention just another thing that popped into my uh, Gemini brain uh, a moment ago, uh, and that is, uh, in 1991, in December of 1991, as the Soviet Union was dissolving, the people, the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh, held a referendum uh, 
in which they overwhelmingly voted something like on the order of 98, 99% to secede from Azerbaijan, from neighboring Azerbaijan. As far as I know, there has been no mention of that referendum, but here was an example, a peaceful, nonviolent example of a people asserting their right to sovereignty that had been completely ignored by the so-called international community. So how, how to understand current events mm-hmm. has always to be located uh, within a historical narrative. Uh, here again, to talk about our Armenians, and I happen to be Armenian, uh, you know, there was the genocide uh, of 1915. And so to see what's happening today in Nagorno-Karabakh is within the shadow of what happened in 1915 as well. It's almost a continuation of a dispossession, dislocation, and and death and destruction. So that, to understand what's going on, we have to understand uh, the past and how the past shapes current events, but also what's, what, uh, what we can do as media producers, as you are, as I am, uh, what people can do in finding and supporting alternative sources of information. Uh, this is very crucial. Uh, Canada has a handful of um, you know, media that are controlled by a few uh, people, you know, Rogers and Shaw and the others. Telecommunications is dominated by large corporations in Canada as well as in uh, the United States. In fact, I got into alternative radio years ago because of a book that Ben Bagdikian had written called The Media Monopoly. And it alerted me to the fact that there was concentration of media going on and that this posed serious uh, problems for democracy. And we've seen that over and over again, that by narrowing the range of opinions and perspectives that are offered to people, it, it should be ideally A to Z, A to Z, right? But what we have today is more like A to B. It's extremely narrow. Uh, there, it's lacking in uh, history and context and background, which is so crucial to understanding uh, any uh, public issue. Mm-hmm. And that it's so important that people uh, support independent media like alternative radio, like what you are doing, and so many others uh, in Canada and in the United States as well. Independent information is critical to advance a progressive uh, agenda. Otherwise, we will be lost in a quicksand of propaganda. David, thank you so much for taking the time today. I'm very happy to be with you. It's so, please invite me back. And uh, people can go to my website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org, and find out more information and tune in. Thursday evenings at 7 on CKUT for Alternative Radio. Thanks, Stefan. Merci, merci mille fois. Merci. That was David Barsamian in Boulder, Colorado. I was calling him about a recent book that was published um, in collaboration with City Lights Books in uh, San Francisco. David, of course, hosts Alternative Radio. I'd really encourage you to check out the, that show. Um, And of course, um, check out the recent book called Retargeting Iran, uh, 
which you heard about just now. Um, this is Free City Radio. It's the 22nd edition. I'm Stefan Christoph. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. Um, Free City Radio comes out every Tuesday. And uh, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email me at uh, stefan.christoff at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Spirodon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. You can subscribe to Free City Radio through Apple Podcasts. Just search us. Please tell a friend and raid the podcast if you like it. Um, really appreciate you listening and being part of this. I'm going to go to a piece of music now. Uh, John Coltrane, live at Birdland, Afro Blue. <laughs> 